and I mean, like, everyone's trying to tell me their issues, and I'm like, bitch, Welcome back to Rebel Girls Book Club. I'm Harmony. And I'm Maggie. And we're here to take you on an intersectional feminist approach to books from all over the spectrum. Bestsellers, we've got you covered. That one book from English class you hated while you read it but you can't forget, we've got that too. Comic books, nonfiction, it's all right here. So grab your tea, grab your blanket, and let's get rebellious talking about your new favorite reads. Hello, this is Harmony. I'm Maggie. Welcome back to Rebel Girls Book Club. Uh, and this week for spooky season, we're talking about the queen of spook, really, Mary Shelley. Yes, she is a badass queen of spook. She, like, invented sci-fi, I heard one of our, our sources say. One of our sources said that Mary Shelley invented sci-fi. <laughs> She's sort of, like, considered to be the mother of that, like, sci-fi horror mix that Frankenstein is, which I think is really interesting because the adaptations that at least I grew up with of Frankenstein and Frankenstein's monster, right. Are like very, um, you know, just sort of like zombie esque horror things. And then when I was a senior in high school, I actually, you know, read Frankenstein for the first time, the modern Prometheus. And it's not scary in like an outright horror way. It's got, in my opinion, at least it's got some like, hella spooky vibes it's very it's very creepy the notion of how frankenstein puts together his monster is like disturbing but it's way more of like an existential horror i would say than it is sort of just like outright horror i think in the way that we sort of equate horror to be in you know this year of our lord 2020 (laughs) what you mean reality i i equate horror to be reality right now (laughs) yeah in this year of our 2020 very real although interestingly i read some really compelling articles kind of prepping for this episode talking about the fact that frankenstein the book was also very much like based on reality because it was it was very much an abolitionist novel in some ways and frankenstein's monster follows very closely the slave narrative and frederick douglas like talks about it and stuff and it's like all a thing uh, which uh, was a reading that I was not exposed to when I read it in high school. And that was the only time I had ever had the ability to like, I guess, talk about it with people in that sort of like English class way where somebody smarter than me would have bestowed that knowledge upon me because that was not something I was familiar with when I was 17 and reading it for the first time. So I found that very interesting. I've already started this episode off in an odd direction. I'm sorry. We're talking about Mary Shelley. She was a cool lady. Why was that, Harmony? You want to tell us? Why was she a cool lady? Well, I wanted to talk a little bit about abolition, but I guess we'll touch back on that afterwards because I hadn't come across that as well in my my research. I didn't come across her being an abolitionist. Oh, yeah. Her and Percy were like big abolitionists. That's very interesting. So I guess just to start, like Mary Shelley, Maggie has a bunch of notes on dates, but she was born in 1797 to Mary Wollstonecraft and William Godwin. And this is like really fascinating to me because her parents were both radical even by today's standards and they were kind of badasses. So her mom was this like big feminist before feminism had really become mainstream. And essentially she she was considered radical because she wrote this book called A Vindication of the Rights of Woman, where she essentially says that women and men are equal and that women just aren't given the same educational opportunities, but that they're just as smart as men. But she's also cool because both her and I believe Mary Shelley's father were big into like the free love movement before we we think of the free love movement as being like in the 1960s. But a lot of these, a lot of these earlier like renaissance era and romanticism era uh people this is past the renaissance but there were like throughout there were there were you know there are multiple renaissance throughout history we're also big into the free love movement and um she had a bunch of different affairs with all of these different men some of which caused her to become suicidal and then she eventually married mary shelley's father after she became pregnant with mary yeah after she became pregnant with mary just to legitimize her called William Godwin, 
who is like the father of modern day anarchism as we think of it. He's not, he's one of many people who created what we think of as modern anarchism. And it's based off of the ideals of the French Revolution. He's like building off of that. But I just thought that was really cool because they're both like highly radical people. And I think that informs Mary Shelley's choices throughout her life because she did some pretty scandalous things as well. It's true. Although I should also put the asterisks in there that as much as they were two cool individuals, there's a lot of evidence that they were also two rather shitty parents. So just to like throw that out there as well, as much as they were awesome as individuals, like Mary and her older sister Fanny did not. I mean, Mary didn't know her mother, but like they didn't, yeah, have, the, she, they didn't have the best time growing up. <laughs> yeah, because Mary Shelley, her mom died. Giving Mary birth. Walton, yeah. Well, it was about a month after I read in one source. I, I heard 11 days. She died very shortly after Mary was born from like complications from the birth. And then Godwin remarried his neighbor. Yes, who was quite cruel to Mary, actually, to the point where her half-sister... Fanny. No, no, no. Fanny was her half-sister older. She had a younger half-sister from the marriage between... They were stepsisters, Claire. Is oh, that who you're yeah, talking about? yeah, yeah. Claire. But regardless, so Claire was allowed to go to school and do all of the stuff and like was very much favored in the household and almost like a Cinderella story. Like Mary had to like scrape by and really was like self-made in the sense that she learned everything she knew just from like having free run of her father's library and things like that. So and her and her father have an interesting relationship that I'm not researched enough on, but there there's some indication that based off of Mary's Mary Shelley's work Mathilda which was published in like 1950 there are is some speculation that it's autobiographical I don't even know that it's speculation every resource I saw said that it is at least partially biographical yeah but there's also like I don't know if this part of it is autobiographical where there is some the story like relies on incest to a degree the father is infatuated with his daughter and I don't know if that was true for Shelley or for her older sister, Fanny, but her father refused to publish that work because of the incest material and because it was, had autobiographical parts. <laughs> so I don't know if that was a thing, but <laughs> it's certainly interesting. Yeah. And then also for things that we know to be true fact, like Godwin was very much a radical, but Mary even did things that damaged her relationship with him. Like her, the beginning of her marriage and everything that happened, like the circumstances that led up to that, which we'll talk about in a second, like her and her father did not speak for years because of it, because it was kind of considered that scandalous at the time. And for context, this was all happening between what the Percy and Shelley met in like what, 1813. And they got married in 1816 right after (laughs) Shelley's first wife committed suicide so yeah yeah so they got together when he was still married which I my my understanding of this is like heavily biased because I saw the biopic about Mary Shelley with Ella Fanning and in the biopic which also you know probably isn't the most historically accurate source although a lot of the big things a lot of the details they get are historically accurate the father disapproves in part because uh, Mary's mom was so tortured by her own affairs and because like it ruins like it was it was in part because of concern of Mary Shelley is what they mm. picked it out to be which I don't I'm not a researcher and I don't know enough about the subject to make any claims but it seems to make sense given the fact that like it is well recorded that Mary Wollstonecraft was actually tortured by her many affairs and did suffer when her paramours left her. Yeah, I don't I don't know. I haven't seen the biopic. All I, all I know from the research I did is that like there for whatever reason there was this major like crack between the two of them that had to do with her relationship with Percy Shelley. Yeah. Yeah. Which was a wild one too. Uh shall we talk about how Percy and Mary met? <laughs> You can talk about that. Percy was 20 and married when he met when he met Mary and she was 15. Um, and they essentially just kind of like had an affair for a couple of years behind, you know, Percy's wife's back. Um, they were living together, I believe. 
And they like they ran away with Mary's stepsister because Mary's stepsister, even though she was like the favored person in her and and Mary's father and Mary's stepmother's relationship, even though she got everything, she and Mary Shelley were really close. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's important to note too. Um, but for a while they ran away because Mary got pregnant because it's in her diary. She talks about the fact that she would like go to the graveyard and then she would go to this other place to read with Percy. And it's like, clearly they were doing more than reading because she got pregnant. She ran away with Percy and they lived together for a while, um, until Percy's first wife committed suicide. Um, I think while pregnant, but I'm not entirely sure. Uh, At the very least, the affair started while Percy's first wife was pregnant. Um, And she also had a child, uh, or maybe she had two children. I think she had two children during this time before. And I do, I also read that she was pregnant, but we'll fact check that later. It's kind of complicated because a lot of this story that happens between all of these people is like... um, littered with affairs and things like that like Percy and Mary themselves had a really tumultuous marriage because there was a lot of affairs on Percy's side and things like that and Lord Byron as Lord Byron really came in and fucked things up and like they were there were ties to him that were like there one of his children was said to be Percy's children was said to be Percy's child so Percy and Mary tried to adopt the child oh was this Claire's child yeah 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 Okay. Uh, so they tried to adopt Claire's child because it was it was said widely to be to be Percy's and Mary and Percy at the time had had four children and buried three of them and Mary had also had an, a miscarriage so intense it it almost killed her so they were trying to like adopt the child and Byron came in and very cruelly essentially said that he didn't trust them to raise a child because they hadn't reared anyone essentially like so many uh, you know many of their children had died um largely for through i mean through faults not of their own right like we're talking about the very beginning of the 19th century here right like and then he put the kid in a nunnery and she died at the age of five anyways so like all of this stuff is sort of hard to trace because like the lineage and the parentage is all kind of it's just kind of very meshed together and very messy (laughs) in a way that's hard even now for researchers to like truly trace who was related to what person because the rumor mill was so intense and obviously there's no way to really go back and like dna check that shit now so yeah she had she had like a very much a life that could have been in a gothic novel most certainly yeah her real life was definitely in a gothic novel um around the time that percy shelley's wife died his first wife they also found out that mary's older sister fanny killed herself and in part i've read that's because mary and claire left because at the time as all of this is going on claire is still living with them at least before they get married yeah but like Fanny died in part because they left and she was she had to deal with the cruel stepmother by herself is what I've read. And Claire is an interesting case too because Mary and her were very close. Claire did birth what we think is Lord Byron's child and there are plenty of reports from Lord Byron himself that Claire was like quote unquote obsessed with him and coming on to him all the time. And it's also thought that he didn't really think much of her. And she and Percy were also very close. And it's thought that one of Percy Shelley's poems is about Claire. And there's also speculation that they two could have slept together during this time in which the three of them are all just living together. Because Percy Shelley was into the free love thing. And it's thought that Mary Shelley was not. (laughs) Yeah, 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 for sure. That's I think that's an important context is that like all of the things about the part of the reason that their marriage was tumultuous was because Percy was out doing his own thing but it like wasn't consensual essentially right like Mary felt betrayed and cheated on um and it was extra difficult because so all of this happens they get married in 1816 they get married also like literally a month after Percy's first wife commits suicide like Really, we're going for the fast turnaround there. Mary is 18 at the time. She immediately, she, she's pregnant again. Her first baby dies at 11 days old. Um, and she sort of, you know, loses it with grief, as I think one would. And then weeks later gets pregnant again. Um, 
And it's right after her second baby is born that she starts penning Frankenstein. So you can also see a lot of intense grief, I think, being worked through in Frankenstein as well, although it is definitely less autobiographical. But part of the reason that Mary had to publish Frankenstein, or felt she had to publish Frankenstein anonymously initially, was because she was legitimately worried that she would lose custody of her children if that novel was traced back to her. I didn't know that. I mm-hmm. thought that she couldn't publish it because it, there are also reports of this as well. People thought it had to be written by a, ma- a man because it was such a masculine novel. Yeah, that, that was part of it. But like, part of what played into that was the fact that she was scared she would lose custody of her children. I think probably especially because she was already living in what for the time was a very scandalous non-traditional marriage where she was probably holding on to things like that by a tight thread anyways. So it wasn't until later in her career that she was able to sort of take uh, ownership of the novel that really started an entire literary movement, right? Like, so, so anyway, so that's all happening in like 1816. Uh, By 1822, Percy's dead. He drowns. By 1824, Byron's dead. He drowns. And then Mary lives another 30 years and feels very alone. Like, she, she, there's a lot of quotes about the fact that she just felt like every, you know, like the majority of people who she loved and loved her, no matter how tumultuous it was at the time, like, they passed away very, very young. And it was just kind of her and her son for a really, really long time to the point where she actually writes a novel. Her last published novel um, while she was alive, I believe, was published in 1826. It was called The Last Man. And um, scarily enough, (laughs) was written in the 20, like the fictional 21st century and is about a plague where the last man laments the fact that he couldn't save the one person that he loved most essentially and a lot of people tie it to the fact that mary feels like she couldn't save her babies that died or i mean like anyone that she loved really but there's some really intense writing in her diaries about the deep deep grief she felt of of the loss of her children and yeah she was just a very interesting and very tragic figure like her young life was very very tumultuous i would say because right like All of this happens, uh, by the time Lord Byron dies, she's what, like 26, if that math is correct? Maybe 20, yeah, she's 26, because uh, Frankenstein was published when she was 18, I think. Or she started writing it when she was 18, and The Last Man came out when she was 28, 10 years later. So (laughs) her, her sort of, like, formation into adulthood was highly dramatic. And through all of this, she and Percy were abolitionists, she was a feminist, like, they were still living, like, rather radical lives although i believe that when i say that percy and mary were abolitionists i don't know that they were necessarily the best abolitionists they were abolitionists that were referred to as being like gentle abolitionists the idea that like you shouldn't just set all slaves free you needed to offer things like education and housing and things like that to them first which sounds nice in theory but came out of a fear that the slaves once freed would just become like bloodthirsty and try and kill all the white people who had enslaved them if you didn't set up that. So definitely not perfect. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. Okay. So a few things to add in on there in Mary's biography, Frankenstein was written as a part of a ghost story at Lord Byron's with a whole group of people. And she was one of the only women penning the, the story in that competition. So that's kind of fun. And Percy Shelley, even though he was kind of a dick because he kept on, like, cheating on Mary, uh, was really incredibly supportive of her writing, which is fun. I also wanted to talk a little bit, before we get into her abolitionism, a little bit further, unless that's all you have to say about it. Nope. Okay, nothing more. (laughs) Well, it's not that there's nothing more to say about it. It's just that, like, you really see it in Frankenstein and not in the text that we're looking at today. I just wanted to throw it out there that, like, that was part of their lives, that they were still living sort of radical philosophical lives while all of this crazy shit was going down in their personal life. That's very cool. So Mary Shelley is interesting, and I haven't, not being a official researcher and not doing official research for this podcast, sorry everyone, I don't have the best grasp of it, but would love to hear if you guys have more of an understanding. You can always email us at rebelgirlsbookclub at gmail.com. But her own philosophy is fascinating to me because she reportedly doesn't 
she's not as optimistic as her parents were in terms of radicalism. She doesn't necessarily believe that the world, like, she doesn't necessarily believe that anarchy is ever going to work because she doesn't necessarily, she doesn't believe that, like, the things that they are fighting for are possible, but she's still, she still has, like, this radical for the time understanding of empathy that we really see in Frankenstein because the monster as it said as it's reported in a philosophynow.org article the monster isn't born wholly good or evil or like the monster is more good than he is evil but he ends up becoming evil because of his circumstances, which was kind of radical for the time, because we're talking about, you know, before the 19th century, this wasn't, even today, we have an, a hard time understanding the fact that people do things in part because of their life circumstances. And the book really, I have never read Frankenstein, but from what I've read about it, is talking a lot about how you know, the monster is actually Frankenstein himself, the creator, and how the creator has really failed his creation. Yeah, there's a lot of readings about that aspect of the book. And I would say that some of the more boring or safe ones are about the fact that like, the monster isn't born good or evil circumstances make him that way in the sense that like, he was just put out into the world. And then the world's like, reaction to the monster makes him the way that he is but some some go even further and say that the real failing is in frankenstein for failing to to nurture and love him and bring him like it's a it's a nature versus nurture argument in the sense that like it's all frankenstein's fault not for creating him but for creating him and then failing to raise him, essentially. And going off the state of radical empathy, part of what makes Frankenstein such a wonderful and compelling novel that I think has really like stood the test of time is the fact that Shelley is able to create a sense of empathy for Frankenstein. He's the monster, but you do feel for him. He's in this like failed Arctic expedition. Like there's a lot going wrong in his life that leads him to the path of creating the monster. But what's even more important is that this monster suffering is worse and you feel worse for the monster who is other in many cases, not even in many cases, like he is other, right? Like he's physically put together. He has to teach himself to speak. He has to teach himself to read. Those are parts of the way that his story tracks with the slave narrative, actually. And you, she's able to radicalize your empathy as the reader because you put aside Frankenstein, Frankenstein's shitty circumstances and the legitimate reasons that he kind of had sort of legitimate for like wanting to create the monster you put aside all of those motivations and you just sit there with the monster's pain and you just have to feel it and you have to empathize with it and you have to feel for the other it's a really like compelling and wonderful novel and also very boring at times (laughs) i can't wait to read it someday someday i'll get there uh but along those lines that's also interesting because her political her Philosophical beliefs also differed greatly from Percy Shelley's, who was a romanticist, which is tended to, romanticism tends to be all about individualism in a way. And Shelley also wasn't big on that either, despite the fact that she wasn't quite as optimistic or radical as her parents. Well, I would say that Percy's version of romanticism is very much individualized and lots of the people that he's surrounded by, that's true. I think it's not entirely fair to categorize the whole movement that way. Okay. Well, during that time, though, that was what the Romanticism movement was, was it not? They were a large part of it, yeah. But I guess, yeah, that's that's sort of how it started. I'm more familiar with the... I studied intensely in school the late Romantics, and that's where it really um, differs. And then you get people like the Transcendentalists in there who are very much not individualists. So it's complicated. Yeah. But that part of Romanticism definitely probably started with, like, Shelley and Byron and sort of like their crew and you're absolutely right that or uh that Percy Shelley and Byron and his crew and you're absolutely right that Mary wasn't like about that part of it okay 
Yeah, and I read somewhere, but I can't find the source now. But when I was watching the biopic, I did some preliminary research. And somewhere I read something about Mary Shelley focusing a lot on the domestic realm and woman and her philosophical leanings as like a lens for the rest of her philosophy. But I don't know if that's BS because I can't source it because I can't find the source. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. Honestly, I am like a little bit ashamed because as much as I did like a lot of work with the romantics and like that was my time period I did a lot more work with Percy than with Mary partially because Mary was less a romantic and way more of like a gothic writer to a certain extent but I don't know a ton about her I know a lot more about Percy and his shitty poetry and uh Byron (laughs) His shitty poetry. Another fun fact before we move on to the story of the Invisible Girl, Percy Percy Shelley, because he died young, Mary had a lot to do with establishing him in the poetical canon of the time. Like she did a lot to to make sure that his work was preserved and remembered. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which I think is really interesting because I would say that I and probably a lot of scholars many of the scholars that I worked with at the very least are sort of of the camp that like Percy had a couple of like really wonderful like poems that stand the test of time and deserve to be studied today but the man was fucking prolific (laughs) like even though he died very young he wrote hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of poems and like the majority of them are are not great (laughs) Some of his epics, like, are are good, but not all of it, like, really stands up. And I do wonder if Mary hadn't pushed so much, if he really would have sort of fell into more of the bylines as being Mary Shelley's husband and Lord Byron's friend, rather than how he sort of thought of now. Not that I think that Mary really lives in his shadow. She definitely has, I think, her own persona, but, like, they're very much seen as all sort of equals with each other, her and Byron and... Percy and I think that's largely because Mary pushed him up there rather than because he necessarily got there out of the same merit like and I mean this is partially just my personal opinion Lord Byron was I think objectively a shitty human but he he had he had a lot more nuanced compelling interesting poems at the very least than Percy did that's fair. I've never read Percy, but I've read Lord Byron, so. <laughs> yeah, I did a I did a whole a whole research paper about Keats versus Shelley, which was really kind of hilarious because Keats was the modern Shakespeare and Percy Shelley just didn't he couldn't compete. It was it was it was a sad paper for him. Okay, and before we get into the story that we chose to read today, I also wanted to talk a little bit about Mary as a gothic writer and her I don't know enough about it, just so you all know, but her contribution to like feminism within the gothic genre in a journal by the University of Tulsa, there is an article written by Kathleen Miller, which I'm going to link, but you guys can only get it if you have access to JSTOR. So I'm sorry, you guys. It's called The Remembrance Haunts Me Like a Crime, Narrative Control, The Dramatic and the Female Gothic and Mary Wollstonecraft Shelley's Mathilda. And One of the things that Miller argues is that the gothic genre traditionally is seen as depicting women as being dependent on men, which is something that Mary Shelley seems to struggle with, apparently, from what I have read about analysis of her work, uh, this idea of, and we're going to see that a little bit when we look at The Invisible Girl, this idea of like a woman trapped by circumstance. And Kathleen Miller argues that she redefines women's agency through the graphic, the gothic narrative. And I thought that was really, really interesting because I haven't read Frankenstein yet, but I have read Bram Stoker's Dracula. And that book, in part, is all about like this alternative version to a feminist and like this good woman narrative, because one of the characters, Mina, who is a main character serves as like this woman whose virtue needs to be saved but who is also inherently good but circumstance is going to like pull pull away her virtue and she's like the ideal woman and she's meant to be like the alternative to feminists at the time and I think even though I'm not studied enough on Mary Shelley's literature it seems to me like her 
just the fact that she like focuses so much on a female lens even if her main characters aren't always female seems to be radical to me and I think we see that even in The Invisible Girl because it's not feminist in the way that Maggie and I usually think of when we're reading feminist literature but it is like femininity is so interweaved throughout the tale and I don't know I don't know what do you think about that like the idea of a feminine gothic because we do see this in horror movies too right like the way that women are overly sexualized and depicted as virtuous or non-virtuous and like how that relates to morality and horror can sometimes be really fucked up but I'm wondering if you've seen through Mary Shelley's work because you have at least read Frankenstein, <laughs> a sort of alternative for that. Yeah, for sure. Full full disclosure, it's been a hot fucking sex since I've read <laughs> Frankenstein. But there is a main female character in it, and she has a lot of agency from what I remember, and is really sort of, <sighs> I don't want to say like the antithesis to the doctor, because that makes it sound like she's like held up in virtue, but like, she is almost an equal to the doctor from what I recommend from what I remember and she's out here really sitting there and being like what you're doing is fucked up what you're doing is wrong etc etc and then she gets targeted by the monster and like there's there's a lot going on there I really saw that theme though in this story because essentially what happens here is we have like this girl who is invisible in multiple ways because she's held up as essentially being this perfect ideal of what a girl should be at this time, right? Like in her portrait and stuff, she is she is dainty, she's pretty, she's got the right interests. They talk the narrator talks about the fact that she's reading like the like exact correct book, things like that. And so she's so perfect that she almost becomes part of the furniture and blends into the background and she becomes like an invisible girl in that way. She's invisible in the household that she's in because Sir Peter is literally blind in the story, which on the one hand is convenient because Rosalind and Henry, who is Sir Peter's daughter, are having an illicit affair, essentially. They're in love. (laughs) I don't really want to call it an illicit affair. They're in love. But it's illicit because she is a poor orphaned girl who Sir Peter just like has happened to bring into the house and stuff. But he's literally blind to the fact that she really exists as a human with human wants and desires and things like that. Uh, And it's only once Mrs. Bainbridge comes in and fucks things up for her that she becomes invisible in a in in sort of the way that I think the story is really trying to get at because she's removed from the house, she's removed from Henry, and she ends up running away and living in this tower and sort of like ghosting through the village and in fact until the end of the story you're not entirely sure whether you're dealing with like a ghost story or not um because the beginning of the story is set up very much in the traditional romantic way where you have an outside narrator coming in and commenting on all of these things that are happening and he sets it up as being a vengeful ghost story so like this whole invisible girl thing, this femininity in the gothic, I think really struck me because in the end here, what the horror sort of was, was ultimately like the mistreatment, the horrible mistreatment and the cruelty that this poor girl (laughs) faced at the hands of Sir Peter and Mrs. Bainbridge. And then like ultimately Henry and society for the fact that they couldn't save her, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's really interesting because let's, okay. So That's exactly what it is. Maggie's right. It's about an illicit affair, um, but told through the lens of a ghost story. And the girl ends up like being the ghost, but also turns out to be a literal girl. But let's start with the narrator, because I saw through other analyses that the narrator is assumed as a man, but I don't think it's ever explicitly stated, which I found interesting. I think he's referred to as a gentleman at some point. Where? Let me control F it. Oh, maybe it's not. I think it's assumed because it is a traveler, right? And, like, there probably wouldn't be a woman traveling alone. Mm -hmm. But I found that really interesting because we do know that Mary Shelley does like to write slightly autobiographically. And reading it from a feminist lens, like, I kind of wanted to think that the narrator was a woman. And right from the beginning, like, we have this depiction of this picture of this lovely girl who's in the bloom of youth you know she's reading something about romanticism she's super innocent and beautiful and then we have like 
we have the old woman come and that I thought like the old woman's the old woman who tells the story I thought was an interesting take because she is first introduced as an old woman pops her head out of a loophole and then she's it's described a minute after a feminine voice called to me from within and I thought that was really interesting too because even though she's old she's still associated as feminine which we don't commonly see like it would have been it could have been like a crackled old voice or something like that like we tend to disassociate those things but we're talking about this youth and then right after we have the old woman who is going to like give us this narrative which ultimately ends up being like a love story and it ends up being a fairy tale like it ends up with a happy ending kind of which also well no it does she eventually like the, the invisible girl event, Rosalina, she eventually ends up, Rosina, she eventually ends up like getting her life back. She does, but she suffers with PTSD afterwards from what she's like experienced. Yeah. So like, it's not a perfect fairy tale ending in the sense that like, things aren't just great for her because she got everything she wanted. She's still suffering the after effects and the consequences of what she was put through to get there. Yeah. So I thought that was interesting that it's a woman telling the story and that like you don't have a gender to our our narrator. I think that's also extra interesting because there are multiple ways in which old women are more villainized later in the story once it's happening. So there's an old woman there's a there's a woman who's also playing a hostess who's referred to as being old and ugly and that makes mm-hmm. her peevish and inhospitable and all of the uh, sort of descriptions of Mrs. Bainbridge are pretty intense. Like, all at once an ominous personage made its appearance in Vernon Place in the shape of a widow of a widow sister of Sir Peter, who, having succeeded in killing her husband and children with the effects of her vile temper, came, like a harpy, greedy for new prey, under her brother's roof. Yeah. And to be clear, that, that, that quote that you just brought out, too, before that, the peevish and inhospitable... I read that as being about the lighthouse keeper because the whole thing with the lighthouse, why they think she's invisible is because it's a fairy light, right? So like there is a lighthouse, but like they're not convinced it actually exists and lighthouses are meant to like get the sailors and and like provide them some sort of hosting. But the woman that isn't there to greet them. So she yeah, must yeah. therefore be old and ugly and peevish and inhospitable. When in reality, she's this beautiful girl who is like the epitome of virtue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But is it? Because she's also a whore, according to the story and like the characters within it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And she's re- she when she's found out as being Henry's love, she's described by Sir Peter as being this like seductress, temptress, like, you know, pretty much pretty much every sort of evil thing that you could say to a woman at, in like 1812, you know? Yeah, it's very interesting because this is a story that we primarily where we primarily live in like the masculine lens but like yeah there's just so much female presence and so many female characters when rosina is introduced to her gender isn't officially like given out until the next sentence we first meet her through henry's like remembrances because he's here at the lighthouse and he's having a hard time rosina is described as like the better child because she and Henry are raised together and Henry was the only child of Sir Peter Vernon and as much spoiled by his father's idolatry as the old baronet's violent and tyrannical temper would permit a young orphan was educated in his father's house who in the same way was treated with generosity and kindness and yet who lived in deep awe of Sir Peter's authority who was a widower and these two children were all he had to exert his power over or to whom to extend his affection. So Rosina is the orphan and she is described, I, I took it from like reading that first description as like, she is the better child. And Henry is this like kind of evil spoiled child who takes everything for granted. Yeah, Rosina is described as being a cheerful tempered girl, a little timid and careful to avoid displeasing her protector, but so docile, so kind hearted and so affectionate. So she's like painted as being this perfect girl. 
partially because she allows St. Peter, or not St. Peter, Sir Peter to exert that power over her. Like she lives, she lives in enough fear of him that he feels that he can extend affection to her as an, you know? Yeah, so that's interesting when we're talking to about Mary Shelley's philosophy that the orphan child, the girl that comes from no means, um, is the better person and also this idea of like having power exerted over her. Because it's, Henry can't, like his power, the power that Sir Peter exerts isn't as effective on Henry because Henry's spoiled and sure of his place in society. And what and happens also knows that one day he's going to overtake Sir Peter. Yeah, exactly. So that's interesting too, because she's this perfect child who Sir Peter really loves and like relies on the affection and feels ownership over, but who he turns his back on. Um, simply because she's without means and because she's the easier to blame. Yeah, absolutely. I'm also reminded of the nature versus nurture argument again that we that we were just talking about with Frankenstein. Whereas, like, it's hard to know whether Henry was actually all of these things growing up because we're getting it from like a sort of biased perspective on how Saint. Or, oh my god, I keep saying Saint Peter, Sir Peter feels about him growing up. Mm. But what we do know is that he loves and dotes on Rosalina, and she is just just. just Described. Is it Rosina or Rosalina? Because I think it's Rosina. I think it's Rosina, and I just can't talk. <laughs> <laughs> um, right. And uh, therefore, she's ascribed all of the good qualities, right? Like she's given the love and affection um, to create like a kind-hearted person, and Henry is not. <laughs> Henry's sort of given the more hard-ass kind of things, and he becomes in Peter's mind like uh a spoiled person um or he thinks that he is in peter's mind because this is coming from his perspective yeah 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 for sure for sure but then that's also extra complicated because henry is then also idealizing this girl that he grew up with right so like he's also painting all of this stuff onto peter's treatment of all of them so like there's a lot of layers of perception here (laughs) yeah and it's interesting too because even though sir peter is admonished by Henry. He's not nearly admonished as much as like Sir Peter's evil sister, who is called Mrs. Bainbridge, and who is thought to have destroyed her husband and children through her temper. I don't know, like, did she actually kill her husband and children? That's That's what the passage I said, that I read said, that she succeeded in killing her husband and children with the effects of her vile temper. And she specifically came like a harpy. But again, but the story is complicated. Them, or yeah. is it just- no, I know it's complicated, right? Because ultimately what's happening here is like, this is the ultimate fucking romantic move, right? Is that this is ultimately Henry telling his story, but he's telling it to the old lady and the old lady is then telling it to our narrator right so we're getting it so many degrees removed that like it's actually kind of and the narrator's telling it to us so it's kind of actually hard to pinpoint what's true and what isn't and who added what bits to like everything but at the very least someone perceived that mrs bainbridge killed her husband and children yeah exactly and mrs bainbridge is the other old harpy and she is admonished versus our old woman narrator who is described as feminine and therefore I would say is implied as good. So we have both we have both depictions there. Yeah. Yeah. And Mrs. Bainbridge is also Sir Peter's sister, which is why she comes to live with them in the first place. And essentially is the person who sees, obviously, because she literally can see the fact that henry and rosina are in love and like doing their little thing together uh she's they're fucking they're fucking fucking. i want to i also want to paint it as more than that because at the very least from the perspective we get henry always intended to do what he like to marry her and things like that like they're fucking sure but it's not necessarily just in like a fuck boy sort of way, which would have, I think probably been the traditional thing at this time where like he was just doing what he could with Rosina because she was there. There seems to be like genuine feeling 
which I think is probably supported by the fact that he does marry her in the end. Um, yeah. And it seems at least from what we get from Henry that it is returned. Um, Rosina like writes him a letter that she is then later punished for because according to Henry, Mrs. Bainbridge gave Rosina a maid that acted as a confidant and then later betrayed her and which she talks about never marrying anyone else but Henry. Yeah, but she doesn't say she's trying to be covert about it, right? So she says, I'll, ne- I'll never marry, uh, I won't marry another, never. And it's the never that like, is is the nail in her coffin, right? That like for Mrs. Bainbridge is like, oh yeah, she's like in the Henry and we gotta send her away. It's not just like the scandal of them living under the same roof and therefore like fucking without being married and also having been raised together, but the pro- that's the problem. It's also the fact that like they cannot sell Rosina anymore because had this not happened, Rosina would have gone to the highest bidder. And also on top of that, Rosina isn't viewed as Sir Peter as being good enough for Henry because she came from a poor or- orphan background. So like it has nothing to actually do with Rosina and everything to actually do with the circumstances to which she was born yeah no one no one says anything no one has any qualms about the fact that they were raised together and I know (laughs) that like I know that that for me is totally just as me as a contemporary reader because kids were kids who weren't related were raised together and then ended up getting married all the time in the early like late 1700s and early 1800s but as a modern reader it's definitely one of those things where you're like how is this not like they were raised together as siblings (laughs) Yeah, it's definitely a little weird. I mean, they can't have, you know, incest babies, I guess. So <laughs> where's the harm? But I don't know. <laughs> That's really all they cared about back then, honestly. It is interesting, though, given that we know that we know that Mary Shelley has written about incest before in her later novel, Mathilda. So I wonder yeah. if the same themes were being played out here or if she was trying to say something important about it. Yeah, I don't know. It's hard to say. I think it's hard to say because even though they were raised together, like, because no other character ever mentions it and they do kind of get there happily ever after, like, I'm I'm conflicted. So anyway, so plot-wise, then Mrs. Bainbridge sends... It's important to note that Mrs. Bainbridge doesn't send Rosina to the tower. Mrs. Brain, Mrs. Bainbridge sends Rosina to Wales to live at a different property of Sir Peter's. And there is just treated pretty much with the utmost cruelty we don't get like a ton of detail really about what happened there but we know that she's so miserable she runs the fuck away and ends up in the tower because living in the tower and being destitute in that way and having very little money and essentially floating around like a ghost through this town to the point where even though she has to go to the town to do things like buy bread people are never really sure that they've seen her which is why she gets this reputation as the invisible girl like that's the preferable life to being kept up in this tower and then Henry's out on a boat doing his boating thing. The boat ends up there after they almost die. And that's how they find each other. Yeah. And Henry's there in part to look for her too. Like he's on this journey to yeah, try yeah, and yeah. find her. He's on the boat to try and find her. But like the fact that they happen to essentially get shipwrecked there is all happenstance. Yeah. It's interesting too, because Rosina is described as like being smaller since she's lived this life uh, uh, being the beacon light keeper. She's emaciated, essentially. Yeah, yeah, because she hasn't <laughs> been eating and also because she, like, hasn't seen anyone. Like, she's spiritually and also physically emaciated. But one of the lines that's given from his perspective, but it's, like, implied that she has said this to him, by night she burned the pine cones of the wood, and night was her dearest time, for it seemed to her as if security came with darkness. I found that line really interesting because we are in a gothic tale, and she is playing the part of ghost. But also, I feel like, you know, with my interest in witchcraft, which it always comes back to, there's a lot of mythology out there about, like, women in the dark, and even the fact that, like, women, you know, historically did their practices in the dark. And also just the idea that, like, darkness as security, I found really interesting because even though she's emancipated, this is her safety net, right? Like, her living in the darkness, or if we were looking at it through Mary Shelley's lens, maybe, like, in the grief, is comforting. Did you mean emancipated or emaciated? 
emaciated is what I meant. Thank you. (laughs) Okay. Well, I think it's also interesting, though, because it's not just in mythology, right? When we're like, plenty, plenty of women actually, to this day, use the cover of darkness to do things like use the restroom if they don't have a safe place to go to the bathroom and things like that, because it's safer to use the cover of darkness to take care of those things than it is to try and find a safe place to go in the daylight and stuff. So I think that darkness as safety is really, I just agree with you that it's super interesting because it's made out by so many tales that are essentially targeted to and about men and their experiences is like the, you know, things go bump in the night. Yeah. But in reality, for lots of women, while it's possible that things go bump in the night, it's also possible to find safety. And I think that you're right also that for Rosina, it's also like finding not safety in the grief, but like a safe place to grieve potentially like a safe place to stop being so invisible you know yeah like that's the place where she can be herself because no one can see her and that idea of solitude as safety too is interesting I think and I think that's also interesting because she's technically more invisible in the dark in the sense that no one can see her but because she feels more herself she's technically she she's also more visible simultaneously yeah she's allowed to be herself yeah yeah and then also like what do you think about the role as her like of her as a lighthouse keeper I don't know a ton of the history about this but like traditionally like the fact that she's up in a tower I think is interesting because that's what we associate that with solitude we also associate we also associate it with like being trapped we have the tale of Rapunzel and the lighthouse keeper I do know historically like did tend to be wives of people or widows And that's also like an idea of solitude too. What did you see in that? I thought that was especially interesting considering the fact that like she was a lighthouse keeper, but wasn't, but also wasn't really a lighthouse keeper because it was like a fairy light situation and she wasn't, she wasn't actually there to bring ships into safety, right? Mm -hmm. She was there to bring Henry to her. but it is though right like because that's what happens he's really the only one who believes in this whole situation who really sees the fairy light like she she summons henry to her and it's like very cute this this story has a lot of really dark themes and dark things going on but like from what we can gather their little love story is actually kind of pure and wholesome (laughs) like and of course it does come from henry's perspective so you have to put that caveat on it that we don't know how rosina actually feels but like when he finally comes to her she is so relieved she can barely even speak right like she is just broken down to the base essence of human emotion And also the base essence of, like, a body, essentially, because she's so emaciated and things like that. So I thought that the lighthouse keeper thing was actually a clever play on all of that, because she's not trying to bring ships in, she's trying to bring Henry in, and then she does. And she does it with, like, this little fairy light, and it's, like, targeted and specific, and it's it's their faith in each other that essentially brings them back to each other, right? Like... And some well-timed tragedy in which Henry almost dies because it's a it's a it's a gothic short story, so you gotta go you gotta have that too, you know. <laughs> gotta have that drama. Yeah. Girl about that drama. But I also thought it was interesting because usually the girl in the tower story, as you're talking about with Rapunzel and stuff, right, is like she is put there by some evil stepmother, right? She's put there by Mrs. Bainbridge. In reality, Mrs. Bainbridge puts her in a castle, and the castle is the place of isolation and torture. Whereas the tower she puts herself in is a place where, you know, you said, you said emaciation earlier, you said emancipation earlier and you meant emaciation, but I think it's also a place where she finds emancipation to a certain extent, because as an invisible girl, she's free of a lot of societal expectations and stuff. And she's able to kind of live in some ways a more restricted life because she's invisible, but also a less restricted life because she's invisible. So the tower is isolating and trapping but it's also simultaneously freedom, um, especially when Henry is able to like come find her. And I think it's also interesting because Henry doesn't necessarily rescue her, I would say. He does to a certain extent in the sense that she's obviously not doing great, but she's also not like dead <laughs> right like I know that sounds weird and stuff but she says very very clearly at the end of the story about the fact that like she would rather have lived here and in this life than 
go back to a place where she would have had more creature comforts essentially but been kept away from henry so like he she's able to in a certain extent because of the fact that she chose to run away like meet him on her own terms you know he didn't rescue her from the ivory castle that she was actually trapped in she rescued herself and then they met up she was just in shitty circumstances in rescuing herself (laughs) which is fair because at that time like what are you supposed to do when you're a woman without money or means or protection because we didn't have a lot of rights yeah Yeah, I also, the other big thing I wanted to talk about is this is definitely a retelling of Cinderella because we have, you know, the poor girl who marries the rich boy and we have this whole thing about her slipper, which is how Henry knows to come find her, essentially, aside from the light. Like, he's in the the lighthouse and he sees a slipper and he thinks about Rosina and he's like, this would have fit one of her dainty feet. He doesn't know it's Rosina until he actually finds her. But, like, that idea of returning the shoe... I thought was interesting and I don't what did you think about that like the idea of this being a retelling of Cinderella because in a lot of ways as you kind of pointed out like this is a more empowering tale than what we get from the traditional Cinderella but maybe not as empowering as what we would have as like a modern day retelling today because of the circumstances yeah for sure I mean that was sort of my take on it as well is that like this is the you know the like early 1800s version of an empowered Cinderella you know like but then also I I I just I don't think it exclusively plays on Cinderella like I think it plays on a lot of fairy tales just because the the parallels to like Rapunzel and stuff are also so easy to make so to me it seems just more like a a total just twist on what it means to be a fairy tale and a fairy tale in which the protagonist doesn't just like suffer needlessly she does eventually get what she wants even if she has to still live with the consequences of what it means to have gone through hardship which i think is just like a realistic thing but like i think about the little mermaid and stuff right like we're so so many female protagonists of fairy tales are just like explicitly tortured and then are sad because it's like a christian thing and they're all going to hell anyways. <laughs> and this and this one very much takes a different tack, I think, of talking about the fact that it's possible to be a good person and in many ways to be an ideal woman and still have, you know, sexual desire and still have love and still, and like those things don't send you to hell and get like your feet to feel like knives every time you walk, you know? Like you go through, you go through hardships still, but she came out of it. I don't want to say on top, but like she came out of it a survivor and she came out of it getting to keep her love. Yeah, that's really interesting because in our notes I wrote, oh, this is a gothic fairy tale. But to like that's because I'm putting my modern lens on it and we don't typically like our version of fairy tales are not the same as how they were back in Mary Shelley's day. And most fairy tales were gothic to begin with and they were very vulgar. So like Mary Shelley's just kind of like furthering Like, she's just writing in her genre already. And another interesting thing about the suffering is that, like, Mrs. Bainbridge, the villain, doesn't receive unnecessary suffering. She just kind of disappears and is never heard from again. Whereas in traditional fairy tales, the villains sometimes, like in the traditional fairy tale of Cinderella, receive cruel punishments for their villainy. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And also, like, Sir Peter is also a villain here. And he finds himself in I think an ultimately unsatisfying but in like this weird moral quandary where he sends Rosina away and then does regret it like feels guilty about it feels like he shouldn't have done this to this girl who he does genuinely love and have affection for um so you like see his sort of moral back and forth throughout it as well at least through Henry's perspective Again, this is sort of where the storytelling narrative of it gets confusing about what's true and what isn't and what is being layered on. But I think that adds to the fairy tale nature of it, right? Like this story very much reads as sort of an oral tradition, like fairy tale to a certain extent, because it's being told by a person to a person to a person to us. Yeah. Yeah, that's very interesting. He's like, he's the villain, but he's also at least given nuance. Yeah, 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 yeah. He's 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 the villain, but he's 
the human villain, whereas I think Mrs. Bainbridge is very much more, not that she's supernatural in any way, but like she is very much like the evil villain. That's how she's painted out as being here. Yeah. Yeah. But in the end, it's Sir Peter who does the damage, right? Because he's the man and he has the power and he's convinced of all of this. So. Which is important because like, that's where we have to remember where the lens come in. So like, see, Sir Peter is forgiven eventually, it seems, because he gives their blessing, his blessing for them to marry. But yeah, like he he was the one that was in charge and he was he was supposed to be Rosina's guardian and in the end he's the one who failed her. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. Do you have anything else? I don't. I don't. Um we will link the invisible girl. We have a nice free link for you guys and we will link the sources that we pulled mm-hmm. for this. Um I'm like excited to read more Mary Shelley. She's pretty cool. I really want to read The Last Man now. I think I'll probably do that next month. Yeah. I think it would be interesting if we revisited her on the podcast. And apparently she has poetry too, which maybe we'll revisit again in the future. Future Halloweens. Future spookies. (laughs) It's it's not spooky. It's sad poems for the most part. (laughs) We can revisit her, but just maybe maybe not for a spooky episode. (laughs) Well, maybe some of her novels that we could revisit for spooky episodes, just because she is gothic. So, like, this wasn't, like, necessarily the spookiest story, but, like, it's gothic, so in a way it kind of is spooky. Like, I mean, and it's also a play on all of the tropes, right? Like, of a ghost story, right? Like, all of that stuff. You legitimately don't know the first time you're reading it that it's not a ghost story, ultimately, until you get to the end. Because for a really long time, everyone, even Henry, thinks that Rosina's dead, and they're just looking for her body. They think she, that's something we didn't talk about, but they, for a long time after she disappears, they think that she just like gave up and committed suicide. And I think that's the other empowering thing is that people assumed that she wouldn't have sort of like the strength and the wherewithal to overcome these circumstances. And she did. Yeah, exactly. It, yeah, <laughs> that's like, you're, you're correct. It's also like another Mary Shelleyism to have the monster end up being the good guy in a way. Like she's the monster, but she's also the damsel in distress. And she's not really a monster. <laughs> yeah, 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 for sure, for sure. All right, what do we think? Was this a feminist story? All right, so I think if we're looking at it from the 1800s, then yes, because I don't, although we got some depictions that were more woman focused in that time period most of them are romantic tales and this one is too but I think that it's very subversive and I think that is feminist but I don't think it's like I don't oh and the fact that like it allows a woman to have sex without getting punished punished long term I think can be feminist but I don't think it's like the most feminist and I don't know I don't know if it would like if if it were a modern text I don't know that it would be feminist but I like am inclined to think so too because I do think that it is deliberately subversive and that that is explicit enough I think that I agree with you in the sense that if we were if we were readers of this like in the early 1800s like this would be a feminist tale um I think that today it holds up much more as a tale that has a strong feminist critique of things going on in society but because the I think empower like we don't have a woman's perspective and things like that like the women's empowerment is not necessarily at the center of the story so much as like the love story is mm-hmm. I wouldn't necessarily say that it holds up today as just being like straight up a feminist tale I think it is really worth reading though under a feminist lens looking at that feminist critique because I think that Mary Shelley was clearly trying to say things about the treatment of women at the time yeah, which she said. What you reading? Uh, what am I reading? Oh, okay. This is young adult. This is young adult week, as I told Maggie. So, um, it's I not am... actually young adult week. <laughs> it's young adult week for Harmony. So this is like not young adult, but I I view it as young adult adjacent. And actually, you probably heard it last episode because that's when we're talking about it. But right now, because we're recording things out of order, I'm audiobooking the Ghost Bride, and um, I'm also audiobook booking Midnight Sun which is the new Twilight book and then I'm also reading a book that we'll revisit that we will read later on in the this season in just a couple of weeks actually 
Yeah, just a couple of weeks from when this comes out. I'm very excited. I actually I think it might be December and we're in October right now. Or maybe yeah, it's November. Like late in October though. Oh, okay. Well, I don't know when we're this is airing, but I'm reading A Great and Terrible Beauty. And that was fun and interesting because uh I thought I I haven't read that book since I was like 14. And um I picked it up in the beginning and I was like, oh God, young adult. Ugh. Um, and then I like started like ripping through it and now it's really hard for me to put down because I just love it so much. What are you reading, Maggie? <laughs> I'm reading The City We Became by N.K. Jemison. Oh, very good. Very good. My homework is to, I think, rectify some of my past sins and look a little bit more Mary, Mary Shelley. Yes. My homework is to also read more things by Mary Shelley. I don't know what it's going to be yet, but maybe when actual spooky season comes for me, I will look at Frankenstein finally. It's true. It's August when we're recording this. We're, we're anticipating the spooky season. Next week, we're talking about a book called Carmilla. That's right. And it's super exciting. And fun fact, I'm not going to be reading this version because I don't have access to it. But it there is a version, a new modern version edited by Carmen Maria Machado. And that's pretty cool. All right, my friends, we'll talk to you next week. Goodbye. Bye. Don't forget to rate and review us on your favorite podcatcher app. You can support this podcast by going to anchor.fm slash RGBC and clicking the support to this podcast button. Our episode schedule can be found in our show notes or by going to medium.com slash rebel dash girls dash book dash club and clicking read along you can follow us at rgbc pod on instagram at rebel girls book club on facebook at rebel girls book one on twitter and you can email us at rebel girls book club at gmail.com our theme song is called pretty boys make me feel ugly and it's by the gays See you soon, and remember to read rebelliously.